It wasn't like we had a huge idea that there were this many manufacturing facilities on an island in the middle of the Caribbean during hurricane season. We thought, you know, it would be like Katrina. Yes, it would be horrible, but we would go in there and fix things. doesn't matter how many manufacturers you have here. It doesn't matter what the contracts look like. It doesn't matter what the economics are. You can't get the raw material. The average markup, average across all drugs uh, sold on the gray market was over 600%. I don't know how the word gets to these companies that are the gray market companies, but somewhere along the line, you think about financial incentives and you think about uh, college entrance exams and scams and <laughs> people do things for the money. For 30 years, Massimo has delivered powerful monitoring solutions that have expanded the boundaries and capabilities of non-invasive technologies. As an industry leader in pulse oximetry, Massimo technology is renowned for accuracy, arming clinicians with essential knowledge to support patient safety, even in challenging patient conditions. Today, Massimo technology encompasses much more than pulse oximetry. Massimo is now addressing the challenges faced by clinicians through a versatile healthcare automation platform poised to streamline workflows and enhance the practitioner and patient care experience. Discover how healthcare automation powered by Massimo can improve your practice. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O.com. you guys describe like your worst day dealing with the shortage? That was Hurricane Maria <laughs> by the far. The first pictures now coming in from Puerto Rico. I can't remember what day that hit. It was like a Monday or Tuesday. Maria is the first Category 4 to hit there in nearly a century. Friday they came to us and said we're going to have an issue. I can only imagine what went down when this thing made landfall in the south. Nobody knew really how bad it was other right. than, you know, maybe... The people in Puerto Rico. Roofs peeled from buildings, debris flying, structures collapsing. The emergency management center saying the entire... The Etherist, Episode 2, Hurricane Maria and the Manufacturing Process. That was Chris Snyder, the Cleveland Clinic's drug shortage pharmacist. We also heard from him in the first episode. And what he says is that even though he knew the hurricane was coming, and he knew there would be an impact... It wasn't like we had a huge idea that there were this many manufacturing facilities on an island in the middle of the Caribbean during hurricane season. We thought, you know, it would be like Katrina. Yes, it would be horrible, but we would go in there and fix things. And that's Kim Crowley, the lead pharmacist at Laurel Senior Assisted Living Communities in Kentucky, who we heard from last um, But it just so happened that it was the small volume fluids facility that supplies all of North America that we put all of our drugs into infuse every patient that comes into a hospital. It was a very significant impactful event. 100% of Puerto Rico now without power. Everywhere you look. I'm Michael Gagno. I'm director of pharmacy practice and quality with the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. The supply of those sailing bags coming into the United States was just as bad as getting support to the um, to the residents of Puerto Rico. So whether or not the plant itself was affected, of course the infrastructure was affected. If you if you start to think about the way pharmacies and a lot of businesses 
function with lean inventory models. You don't keep a lot on hand because you can continue to resupply from wholesalers. Likewise, wholesalers are keeping less supply on hand than you might think because they can resupply from, from the manufacturers. So within a couple of weeks, we were starting to see the impacts of what could happen with this shortage. It wasn't immediate because like all pharmacies, I had some in stock. We don't wait till we're out. Well, it's been a month and a half since Hurricane Maria slammed into Puerto Rico, causing the longest blackout in American history. A day came when I was getting lower and, and I tried to order. The one I normally order was not available. As most of the island still doesn't have power. Hospitals are scrambling because the storm shut down production at factories that make critical drugs and medical supplies. So I tried a different one, a different one. This happens probably a month out okay. from Maria. You can't get anything. Normal saline would be used by the cases every single day. And you open up your wholesaler page or you open up the FDA shortage page and it's just unavailable. We had to decide what we were going to do with insulin infusions because, you know, we use insulin infusions in our ICUs and our ORs and, and um, there, there was that day that it was like, mm, we're going to run out of these tomorrow. <laughs> I'm Angela Yaniv. I'm an assistant director of pharmacy at Cleveland Clinic, and I take care of sterile products. She works with Chris Snyder. In fact, that's his frustrated laugh in the background. And that feeling of frustration was something we heard a lot, mostly because... Just this December, did it really open up a little bit? So you have a hurricane, you have some sort of, you know, weather-related issues, and it wipes out a whole plant in Puerto Rico. Well, okay, that affected uh, every health system across the country. And the fact that you can't get something as basic as normal saline for injection is, is pretty acute. Um, but nonetheless, that's what we are facing. This is Ernie Anderson. I've been in the pharmacy business and health system pharmacies for about 42 years now. In that time... He's held a number of positions at various institutions, from associate director at New England Medical Center when it was called New England Medical Center, and now it's called Tufts Medical Center, to director of pharmacy. From there, I moved on to Leahy Clinic in Burlington, Massachusetts, to vice president. And from there, I moved on to be the vice president of pharmacy for Stewart Healthcare. At the time, it was an 11 hospital system. Then, about six years ago, I went into consulting. And he says, along with everyone else we interviewed, yeah. Mario's bad, but it was a single event that exposed a much more pervasive problem within the U.S. health system, and it's been affecting providers long before Maria ever touched shore. But to understand how something is broken, we should first understand how it's supposed to work. Now, most manufacturers, they start with these active pharmaceutical ingredients, um, or the API, and make a drug. Turns out that most of the APIs come from places like India and China. From the API, it has to get um, then typically dissolved. So it gets dissolved, it's gonna get filtered, um, and then depending on what they're making, whether they're making an oral solid or they're making an injectable, will determine, is it gonna come out as a liquid or is it gonna come out as a solid? If they're gonna make tablets, as an example, then they have to extract all of the solvent that they've used in the, during the manufacturing process to dilute the product in order to filter it, in order to purify it. And then you decide, okay, is it gonna be a coated tablet? Is it gonna be a regular tablet? And again, that's just to make one kind of drug, one tablet, one pill. 
there are thousands of different formulations in different volumes and different dosages made by these manufacturers. It's a very, very complicated process, but no matter the formulation... The manufacturer houses that final product um, on their on the shelves, and it's going to get distributed largely through wholesalers. So you have the distributors like, you know... Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen, McKesson. And then it's going out to a variety of different people, going out to health systems, going out to um, uh, individual drugstores. Um, and it's going through the health system to get to the patient eventually. And that's if everything goes perfectly. That doesn't even include the drugs travel throughout the hospital documenting the drug as inventory in your hospital's electronic medical system of choice, then internally distributing it through a dispensing machine, and then finally administering it to a patient, let alone making sure it gets to the right patient in the right dose at the right time. You know, all the, all the, all the rights. It's a very complicated system. That whole process, the way that drugs are manufactured now in the United States, takes for most drugs in the order of about 200 days. If something happens to a factory or anywhere along the distribution line, something like the first category four to hit there in nearly a century, it's obviously going to gum up the work. So there's that fragility and the, you know, the manufacturing capacity. When that same factory makes multiple drugs, if something happens and a line goes down, you can lose, you know, multiple multiple products. products. Um, And if if they're single source products, That's all there is. There is nothing else. As bad as Maria was, it revealed a much bigger problem that has plagued the medical field in the U.S. for decades. There's not a lot of redundant capacity in space when you lose one of these manufacturers. We're down to really five, what I would say, major um, generic injectable manufacturers from what may have been like 10 or 12 and even more preceding that into like the 90s and the 80s. In fact, the American Society of Anesthesiologists collected some pretty striking data on this. The majority of all drugs in shortage, 66%, have only at most three companies making each drug. Half, 51%, only have two suppliers. And most of the time, we're talking about generic drugs. I mean, these are drugs that could be produced by a number of different manufacturers, but in fact, elected um, to to take certain drugs off of the line, and just, I'm not going to make this anymore. You know, they're you know, $100 million facilities, billion-dollar facilities. And so you have a lot of capital invested in one of these manufacturing facilities. And and if you're going to put that much capital into something, you're going to want it to be producing at 100% all the time. And all of this makes sense when you look at it from a purely business perspective. If you can't get into the market and be guaranteed producing however many units per year, with the margins being where they are, why bother getting in? Manufacturers of generic drugs operate on thin margins even when they're the only player in the game. Or if you don't win a contract, why bother continuing to produce it? The problem with that is when you're cutting costs as a company, one thing that could be the first to go is maintenance, which turns into running your facilities past the breaking point. And that's just one cause in this complex problem. Innovation at Massimo never stops. Sedline brain function monitoring and O3 regional oximetry are available together en route, a single patient monitoring and connectivity hub. With Sedline, clinicians gain key insights on the state of the brain under anesthesia through bilateral data acquisition and processing of EEG signals. O3 regional oximetry supports clinicians by monitoring cerebral oxygenation, offering essential information on changes in tissue oxygenation. 
The Root platform brings these two powerful and complementary monitoring technologies together in one display. Discover a more complete picture of the brain. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O.com. I got a commentary sent to me by John Brock Utney, who's a very well-known uh, person in the world of anesthesiology. He's a professor emeritus at Stanford. 2018 was a year of a lot of drug shortages. He sent this in to you. He felt like this was the time to talk about it. Yeah. You know, he um, uh, was laying a lot of the blame, not all the, of the blame, but a lot of the blame for drug shortages at the foot of group purchasing organizations. This is James Pruden, the editorial director of Anesthesiology News. I sat down with him in our Midtown offices to talk about some of our print coverage surrounding GPOs. His feeling is that the GPO system, which was put in place by a 1987 statute, which is known as the Medicare Anti-Kickback Safe Harbor Statute, it exempted GPOs from criminal penalties for taking kickbacks and rebates from suppliers. He called it basically a get-out-of-jail-free card. Group purchasing organizations basically contract for most hospitals in the United States for the drugs and supplies that are purchased by the, the uh, organization. They award exclusive sort of sole source contracts to, the, to favored drug or IV suppliers in return for fees, rebates, etc. Because of the fact that some companies are frozen out of that deal, those companies are forced to basically halt production. So the result of this system is some places get big contracts, others wither on the vine, basically. It's a bad system. So what was the response to that commentary? Well, we got an immediate response. We got a response from the uh, Healthcare Supply Chain Association, the group purchasing organization's you know, wanted to defend themselves against this. So the president and CEO of, of the Healthcare Supply Chain Association, the HSCA, wrote a letter to the editor in response to that. James is talking about Todd Ebert there. He um, points to the fact that GPOs work closely with hospitals. They work closely with manufacturers and distributors. They're the ones who have a finger in all those pies. And um, he acknowledges the problem. Um, but he also says that GPOs are, are not to blame. They mitigate the impact of drug shortages by working collaboratively with hospitals and, and uh, manufacturers and distributors. So was part of the this correspondence that we got, this response to that uh, commentary, was the idea that if it weren't for GPOs, that things might actually be worse. 180 degrees, different opinion. <laughs> but it may not matter who won the debate that played out over those two issues at the beginning of the year, because- When we, we published Todd Ebert's uh, letter, we also published at the same time the current their current list at that time, back in January 2019, of the drugs that were in shortage. And many of the drugs back then that were in sh shortage are now still in, in, in shortage. And look at ketamine is still in shortage. Bupivacaine is in shortage. Lidocaine in various forms is in shortage. Methadone and, uh, and ropivacaine are in shortage. Still, you know. Um, so the needle hasn't really moved too much when it comes to mitigating these problems. A situation exacerbated and highlighted in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, but- Local anesthetic shortages has nothing to do with- And that's Dr. Beverly Phillip, 
I'm a physician anesthesiologist, and I'm ASA's first vice president this year. She says the kind of shortages, like the one we reported on last episode, the hyperbaric bupivacaine, are actually due to another kind of problem within manufacturing. Uh, if, if you look at the causes of shortages, the most common one is uh, manufacturing safety. This has been ascribed up to 30% of the, of the problem in and of itself. And this is um, things such as uh, defective products leading to side effects, labels are wrong, uh, lack of sterility in the, in the outgoing, in the product, subpotency of the drug, shorter degradation time. These are all things that are discovered by regular FDA inspections. But these issues are out of sight and out of mind for most of us. It's all because of those proprietary secrets. Hi, Meg. So we had touched upon this last time. Hi, Michael. Yeah, we did. We found out a lot about this from Aaron Fox in Utah. We had sent AN's former managing editor, Adam Marcus, to go talk to her. And what Adam and I talked about afterwards, what really surprised him, was how a lot of the manufacturing problems aren't really common knowledge. They don't have to actually define those quality problems because it's a secret uh, which drugs are made in which factory. Even during the shortages related to Puerto Rico, we were never able to get that final list. The best glimpse you can get of a quality problem is to try to read the FDA inspection. Um, and um, I've definitely you know, done some Freedom of Information Acts to try to get it. Um, and what have you learned? That's Adam there. You can read about mold on the walls. You can read about metal shavings in the vials are because the machinery is actually uh, decaying. Um, cracks in vials are usually because of poor quality glass is being used. Um, That's not even the quality problems from the APIs themselves. What we've seen recently is we've, we've seen some quality problems actually with the API coming from some of these other countries in which, believe it or not, there have been um, contaminants with drugs or with particulates or with uh, ingredients in which they think are carcinogenic. If there's a problem with the quality of the original API... If there's only one supplier of one of the raw materials, doesn't matter how many manufacturers you have here. It doesn't matter what the contracts look like. It doesn't matter what the economics are. You can't get the raw material. Even considering all of that, the current shortages are not caused simply because we got some bad products from India or China. They aren't even caused by a hurricane or a fire in a manufacturing facility. What we heard time and time again in our reporting is complaints that manufacturers don't have a backup plan that they don't have redundancy built into their systems because it's not cost effective. For the makers of generic drugs, there's, there's really not room in the business plan to build in redundancy. In fact, she says, those margins are so small. When they have a shortage for four, six months, even a year, it's really not affecting that, that much of their bottom line. But this isn't a normal process for these manufacturers across the board, is it? You can bet that Amgen has a backup plan for, for making some of their products. Same thing with you know, high dollar products. You, you, can, you can bet that there's a backup plan for, for those products. It would be you know, so devastating to their bottom line if they didn't have that product. But you know, a, a vial of, of, of lidocaine that sells for a dollar, you know, it, it might cost them you know, close to a dollar to make that vial. But I should take the time to mention here that we did reach out to many of these companies. A lot of them declined to participate or didn't answer our interview requests. 
Well, imagine you're a hospital's pharmacist or even a consumer-facing pharmacist, and you have patients that need a drug that is in shortage. They need this drug, and you need to give them this drug. And there are always people who are willing to take advantage. They came out of the woodwork after Maria. I've really never seen anything like it. There was not a day go by that we didn't have at least one of those phone calls. And we're small. How do they find us? And the they that Kim is referring to is the gray market. So let's take a minute on this, because it was a phrase that came up a lot. Harry really took an interest in it. I asked everyone about the gray market. The thing is, of all the people I talked to, which is like, I don't know, dozens of people, nobody could clearly define for me what the gray market is. (laughs) So I often wonder if there's some sort of a conspiracy theory in here. Okay. Okay? How does a particular um, distributor know that a drug is going to come in short supply and therefore I better buy it all up? That's a very fair question because one of the reasons for all the secrecy surrounding drug shortages is that the FDA is not allowed to publicize that one is impending. They're afraid that if they do, hospitals will do the very same kind of hoarding that gray market providers seem to be able to do with impunity. Uh, I don't know how the word gets to these companies that are the gray market companies, but somewhere along the line, um, you think about financial incentives and you think about uh, college entrance exams and scams and <laughs> people do things for the money. What's more you know? is that the in- most desperate providers, the ones who have to seriously consider purchasing from these anonymous so-and-sos, calling them up, offering them a drug no one else has, don't really have a resource to go to to see if these gray marketeers are legit. If there is, I don't know about it and I'd like to. (laughs) So you don't know where the drugs are coming from. You don't know if they've been stored properly. You don't know if they're actually even the drugs that you usually order and are looking for. And they can't even be sure that it's a quality product. Under Health and Human Services, they have an OIG, which is the Office of Inspector General. Mm -hmm. They have an exclusion list. So that list is anybody who's ever done something shady enough that the government says don't don't deal with these people. For online pharmacy issues, you can actually um, go through the National Board of Pharmacy, which has kind of a stamp of approval. But there's, there's not a great way to find out if these people who call you out of the blue are legitimate or not. And even if it is a quality product? They're going to pay dearly. I think that example of the the tickets to see the boss at the Meadowlands is, is very apt. But in this case, you're not trying to see Springsteen live. You're negotiating for a patient's comfort, sometimes their life. And just like when you're buying tickets for that must-see show on the night of, around the corner from the stadium. Uh, if you dragged your feet and you didn't get tickets and you need to get to that show for whatever reason, you will pay a premium. Dr. Yoram Nguru again, pediatric oncologist at Sinai, Baltimore. Uh, there was a, a study done by the Institute of Safe Medication and Practice uh, now quite a few years ago, uh, but found that the average markup, average across all drugs, uh, sold on the gray market was over 600%. With some drugs, mainly chemotherapy, were marked up some as high as 4,000%. And most of the providers we talked to say that whenever possible, they avoided dealing with the gray market because of problems with quality, sourcing, and all that stuff we already discussed. But when you're desperate, you're desperate. I do know many especially hospital pharmacies, because of all the medications that we could not get, have paid probably 10 or 15 times the normal price. 
of solutions, injectables like promethazine, furosemide, because they had to have them, and that's the only place they could find them. This is not to say that the entire gray market is bad. If it was, it would be called the black market. A more benign example of this kind of wheeling and dealing could be hospitals just trying to help each other out. So for example, at one institution, if they have a surplus of a medication um, and they can't send it back for credit from their primary wholesaler, they may try to sell it to a secondary distributor. Um, so there's risk involved there. Primarily that there's no way to know for certain that the drug was handled or stored but correctly. Again, when you're, when you're desperate and you're trying to meet the clinical needs of your patients, um, it's an option to consider. I also found out that when drugs do go on shortage, there's a reason why one hospital may have none of a drug while another hospital gets a shipment, though it's usually a smaller one than they ordered. It's called allocation. They do this allocation process based on past utilization. You've typically ordered, let's say, 100 a month, and somebody down the road has ordered 500 a month. Well, they're going to give the guy that ordered 500 a few more than they're going to give you that ordered 100. If somebody didn't order anything at all, they probably wouldn't get it. The wholesalers really do try to um, allocate things fairly, um, so I don't think we're um, like, even if we wanted to hoard, uh, we, we couldn't buy enough uh, to, to keep on hand. But the question remains, how do these gray market suppliers, not the hospitals who have a surplus because of some happy coincidence, but the ones who intentionally buy up the product, how do they know the shortage is coming? Somebody let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> somebody told somebody that this drug was going to be in short supply. And gee, if you want to make a buck, you better buy up as much as you can. And then you can try to sell it on the gray market. Whether it's hoarding drugs, exclusive deals between manufacturers and purchasers, not enough manufacturers of a drug, not enough manufacturers of the API, not enough means of distribution, these problems could be boiled down to a lack of diversity in this marketplace. And historically, when industries failed to meet a public need, the government steps in to pick up the slack. So what has the government been doing? How much trouble will I get if I tell you what I think? <laughs> the FDA does a really good job of telling you what's short, but nobody else does anything to help make it not be short. We almost have allowed the shortages to happen knowing that we could fix it by fixing Puerto Rico. And on the next episode of The Etherist, we'll see where the government is intervening, where they've been successful, and more importantly, where they haven't, and how the consequences of that success or failure ripples through the system. The Etherist was created by Michael DePoe Wilson, our executive producer, and our producers, W. Harry Fortuna, Megan Lee Callahan. Music was by David Cullen and Andrew Russell. And we had help from Adam Marcus, David Bronstein, Marie Rosenthal, Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Matt White, Martin Barbieri, Kwangy Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, and Kristen Janicone. And special thanks to our sponsor, Massimo. I'm James Pruden, the editorial director of Anesthesiology News. Thanks for listening.